We live in a world that's filled with all kinds of trouble. It's becoming more and more difficult, it seems, to find any good news. If you look at any of the newspapers or look at websites, watch the TV news, for example, have you noticed how much of the news today is just trouble? It's, it's about horrible stuff, crimes, murder, terrorism, so-called natural disasters, and, and the list goes on, isn't it? It's a lot of bad news for the most part, isn't it? But to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the really good news is the gospel. Gospel, by the way, means good news. And you might ask, well, what is the gospel? What is this good news? Well, it's summarized for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, which say this, Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It is the good news. You say, well, that talks about my sin. That doesn't sound like good news. Well, (laughs) your sin's been dealt with in Christ. And so the good news is that sinners can be forgiven. It is possible. And it is possible for you to go to heaven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The good news of salvation comes through faith in Christ. And that, my friends, is the most important message in our world today. That's why people are dying. People are dying for this message today. That's how how powerfully they believe in it. Paul died for this message. The Apostle Paul. This message changed the Apostle Paul's life. You remember he used to be called Saul. Originally he was a Pharisee, a very zealous Pharisee involved in the religion of Judaism. But on the road to Damascus, Jesus met him, and Jesus changed Paul's life forever. Paul devoted his life to this message of Jesus dying and rising again. But this message was being attacked. This wasn't a popular message with everybody. And Paul was out to defend the truth of the gospel. Some, you see, here was the problem, in, at least in this region of Galatia. Some false teachers had invaded the churches in the region of Galatia, and they were teaching a different message from the one that Paul had been teaching from the Bible. Paul is, do you know anything about Paul? His zeal didn't stop once he became a follower of Jesus Christ. He wasn't going to stand by and do nothing when the gospel and Jesus was being slandered. And so it was time to fight for the truth. So we see a letter here that was written in the year 48 A.D. Paul wrote a Holy Spirit-inspired letter to these churches in Galatia, and, and you're saying, well, how do we know it's Paul? Well, look at the very first verse in your Bible. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 tells you it's Paul, an apostle. That's all it says. Paul, an apostle. He is the human author whom the Holy Spirit used to write this letter. Some people are geographically challenged, so if you're wondering where's Galatia, I've put a map here on the screen for you. It is in modern-day Turkey. It's in modern-day Turkey. You'll notice, as you look at the screen there, it's between the Mediterranean Sea and and to the north, the Black Sea. And this is this region where Paul had taught the gospel. This is the region where the gospel was 
under attack from false teachers. And so in today's study, as we look at the big picture of Galatians, what we're going to see is the message. We're going to see this good news, the gospel. Let me summarize it for you this way. What we're going to look at today is these four main points. That the message is, number one, from God. Two, here is the message. We, Christians, are justified by faith in Christ. Number three, this message is vitally important. It is vital. And then number four, as with all of Paul's letters, we see how the gospel, this wonderful, glorious message, changes us. First of all, we'll take these one by one. We see here, the message is from God. The message is from God. And we notice, and we begin here by noticing the nature of this good news. It is from God. You see, these Galatians had formerly heard Paul's message. And now they were hearing a different gospel, which isn't the gospel, but they, just bear with me here, but there was this group of false teachers who had come in and started teaching something else other than the Bible. So we need to ask this question as we think about this then. What is the source of the gospel message? Look at the source here in the very first verse of your Bible of Galatians. Galatians 1 verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, notice, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead. So Paul's apostolic mission to the non-Jews, or what you might call the Gentiles, wasn't a human idea. It wasn't his idea. It wasn't anybody else's idea. The risen Christ had met the Apostle Paul as an unbeliever, by the way, as he was on that road to Damascus to throw Christians in jail and persecute Christians. And Jesus met him and stopped him and converted him and then commissioned him for this ministry. The source of the gospel message was from God. And Paul mentions this again. Look at verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. My friends, notice the source of this message is from Jesus Christ Himself, the Lord of the church. Well, how is this wonderful message distributed? Well, as we think about how the mean, or what is the means of the distribution, we, we need to understand there's some implications that come from the fact that the gospel is God's news. So we're going to look at two implications coming from our text here. Number one, the Christian message has a specific content. It has a content, and it's important, it's important for you to know the content and get the content right. Otherwise, you preach a false gospel. Look at Galatians 1, verse 6. Paul talks about this, and he says, I am astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Pretty strong words. So my friends, you need to understand something. There could be no false gospel if there's no content to the gospel. And so that means the gospel message has to be definite, the the gospel message is distinct, and it's something that's definable. It is clear. It is precise. It's not vague, in other words. Therefore, the Galatians should regard anything that contradicts that defined gospel that is that is not defined in that correct content as error. It is error. Now, that is not a popular message in our world today. <laughs> we, we live in this world of postmodernism where it's, it's almost like there's no absolutes. You, you can't throw out absolute truth because my truth is just as important as your truth. And everybody has this truth, and, and how dare you be intolerable to my truth? The gospel is definable. It is definite. It is distinct. So here's a question. What should you do when a new message comes along and it doesn't fit the original message? You do what Paul does, in short. You throw it out. You throw out the message that doesn't match with the Bible message. Well, let's just get to where the rubber meets the road. Because I know some of you listen to messages on the Internet, or you might go to other churches, you might go to Bible conferences, you might read other books. What do you do when your favorite preacher has a false gospel? and it doesn't match up with Scripture, what do you do? You throw out His message. You don't believe it. You hold on to the original message. If somebody's preaching stuff you've never heard before, question marks, warning flags ought to be going up in your mind. You ought to be thinking, whoa, we have over 2,000 years of church history, and I've never heard that before. You ought to be asking yourself, what's wrong? There might be something wrong with that. Well, what do you do if the messenger is the Pope of Rome and he's preaching a different gospel from the Bible? You throw out the message. You throw out the Catholic message. Well, what do you do if an angel comes along? Paul mentions an angel. What if an angel comes along? Like the angel Moroni, if you know anything about the Mormon religion... They believe an angel called Moroni came along with some tablets, with a new message. What do you do if even so-called an angel comes with a new message? You throw out the message. You don't believe it. What if the message comes from a prophet, like Muhammad, for example? What if the prophet Muhammad comes along and his message is different from Jesus' message? What do you do? 
you throw out the message. You hold on to the original message. All right? I hope you get the point. All right? We, we could keep going here, right? The point is, Jesus Christ has the message. The message should not change. It should not alter. And why is that? Well, it's not. The, these messages here, false messages, are not the truth. Which leads us to a second implication, by the way. Not only does this Christian message have a specific content that is definite and distinct and definable, but number two, we see the Christian message should be recognizable by common Christians. Any Christian should be able to recognize the gospel message. And that's why Paul appeals here to the Galatians to judge their teachers. Did you notice what he said in verse 6? Look at verse 6 again, because he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Wow. Paul is basically saying, hey, you should know better. I taught you the original message. I taught you the truth. You should know better. The gospel is not something that's complex. Children can believe the gospel. And so Paul confronts these congregations, and he's assuming that they're competent enough to understand this message, and he assumes they're responsible to handle the matter before them. By the way, that shows congregational responsibility. If you know anything about church government, again, we see here that the congregation is responsible to guard the truth. That includes you. That includes you. All of you. It's not just the elders and the pastors and the bishops and the overseers. It's not just their job. It's every Christian's responsibility to guard the truth. So, if you've never realized that before, I hope you do now. It is your responsibility to guard against false teaching in the church. So watch out. Watch out for the gospel. Let's move on to number two. Second main point that Galatians is teaching us that the message is justification through faith in Christ. The message is justification through faith in Christ. And so we are, we are declared to be righteous, to be right before God here. You say, well, what exactly is the gospel message? What is this big news? Well, here it is, my friends, that a right standing with God is possible. And it doesn't come by our good works. Our good works cannot save us. They can't make us right with God. But you can be made right through, uh, through your faith in Christ. And this is important. It's something we have to get right. And the heart of the gospel message is that every one of us has sinned. It separated us from God. But the good news is that God has taken on human flesh. How did He do that? About 2,000 years ago, He came in human flesh through Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the perfect life that you should have lived. Died on the cross in the place of every sinner who trusts in Him. And now He calls us to forsake our sin, to repent turn from our sin and then to believe in Him. So my friends, that is good news. This good news has content. It has a specific content. So let's get a little specific at the moment here, okay? Yes, justification is through faith in Christ. Well, 
How does that happen? Number one, the death of Christ pays the penalty for sin. Christ's death pays the penalty for sin. You see, sin requires a payment. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says in Romans. So the gospel centers on the fact that Jesus gave himself for our sins. You don't believe me? Look at verse 3. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, Christ took our place. He was a substitute. And so Christ's substitutionary death for sinners is the only hope that any of us has for salvation. You couldn't possibly do enough good works to earn and merit your salvation. So it does not appear here that the false teachers rejected Jesus Christ. The problem was they were teaching people to observe the Old Testament law, specifically the Jewish rite of circumcision. They were focused on that. In other words, let me put it to you this way. To be a Christian, you must first become a Jew. That's what they were teaching. And and to become a Jew, of course, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Remember Father Abraham? God had told him and the the Jewish people that the, the males needed to be circumcised as a rite into the Jewish religion and nation. And so they wanted Jesus but they didn't consider Jesus to be sufficient. Therefore, they taught that you must do these good works, things like circumcision. Well, is that reality? Is that the truth? Well, let's move on to the second important content that you need to understand is this, that faith in Christ is sufficient for salvation. Paul makes it clear here that faith in Christ is sufficient for salvation. Now, we're going to read a few verses here that get this point across. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. As we read this, notice that justification is by faith alone. Galatians 2.15 says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Pause. (laughs) Let me ask you this. As we see Abraham, an Old Testament character mentioned here, how did an individual become a believer, a Christian in Old Testament times? That's an important question, because some people think you're saved differently in the Old Testament than you are in the New. Is that the reality, though? Are you saved differently in the Old Testament? How was someone in the Old Testament saved? Well, the Bible here uses Abraham who, of course, is the father of the Jews, father of Israel, as a great example of somebody who was saved. Notice, he wasn't saved by the law. He wasn't saved by circumcision or any other good works. Look at verse 6, because it says he was saved by faith. Chapter 3, verse 6. It says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham was saved. So yes, it is possible for somebody in the Old Testament to be saved by faith. By the way, that's how everyone is saved. And Abraham is a classic example of that. So Abraham received salvation not by trusting the law or, or any good works, but by trusting in God's promise. He was looking forward to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the one who came to to take away the sin of the world. So again, I ask you this question then. Has salvation always been by faith in Christ? 
And Galatians is telling you, yes. Yes, it's always been by faith in Christ. Well, today we don't hear of many churches requiring circumcision for salvation, do we? Have you heard of any? I'm, I'm not aware of any. So, you might say, well, this, this book of the Bible is irrelevant for us today. Because I don't know of any churches that require people to be circumcised as this initial step for committing to follow Christ. So how can we today lose the gospel message? How can you lose the gospel message? Well, maybe if you ask the question in a little bit of a less religious way, it might help you understand this. So let me ask it to you this way. What makes you feel good about yourself? What makes you feel good about yourself? Just think about that question, right? Maybe it's having a productive day. Some people just thrive on having productive days. they got these huge to-do lists. And, and if they get the whole to-do list done, they're on cloud nine. They're, they're just filled with joy and exuberance. Some people, it's their parents' approval. They live for their parents' approval. For some, it's friends. Got to have lots of friends, and I'm just filled you know, with, with good feelings by my friends. Or for some, it's, it's their hobbies. You know, they, they live for the weekend. They live for the, their time off where they can invest in their hobbies. Or for some people, it's their children or their grandchildren. Grandchildren make me happy. For some, it's a spouse's affection. If they don't have the spouse's affection, their life is in the dumps, right? Or for others, it's, man, I love getting admiration from my boss and my workmates. Every time somebody says something good about me and my work, I'm pumped up. For others, it's just quiet times, me and my book, or whatever, whatever your quiet time looks like, right? That's what makes you feel good, right? And by the way, if you find the answer to what makes you feel good about yourself, possibly, just possibly, you're going to get very close to finding what causes you to confuse the gospel message. Maybe. So the point is never what you do. The point is what God has already done for you. We need to be careful. It's not about us. It's about God and His work. Let's move on to the third main point that Paul is teaching here, that the message is vital. This is a very, very important message. There's nothing more important than this gospel message. And throughout his letter, Paul's expressing his horror at the thought of the Galatians deserting this message. Deserting is it's kind of like what, what a soldier might do in battle. Hopefully they don't. But sometimes soldiers desert. They flee. They want to get away from the battle. They're not supposed to, but they do. It used to be that soldiers, if they deserted the battle, and if they were caught, they would be executed. Pretty serious. How much more serious is it that we desert the spiritual battle and desert this message? So the idea of forsaking the gospel is inconceivable to Paul. Why would anyone turn away from it? (laughs) It's something we shouldn't be ashamed of because it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Again, look what Paul says here in chapter 1, verse 6. 
he's astonished that anyone would turn away. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul goes on to plead with them, don't submit to slavery. Don't submit to spiritual slavery. But instead, in chapter 5, he exhorts them to live in freedom. Live in their freedom in Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. By the way, that's not teaching you can lose your salvation. But what it is teaching, if somebody doesn't put their faith in Christ, they don't have God's grace. Right? They're trusting in something other than Jesus. They are not a Christian. That's the point. Okay. So my friends, the gospel is very, very precious. In fact, it is so precious, it is something that we can actually divide over. Yes, God wants unity. The Bible talks a lot about unity. But it's not unity at any cost. You see, in a local church, threats to the gospel message is so important that we need to fight over that. And that's why in Jude verse 3, it says, earnestly contend for the faith. And so an important part of ministry is correction. And Paul gives us an illustration, a very vivid illustration of this. Look at chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul recognized that even the Apostle Peter was deserting this gospel message. And Paul comes to Peter and he rebukes him for his behavior that was threatening to confuse the message of the gospel. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Wow. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Good question. And so, here you have an example of even someone like the Apostle Peter, <laughs> a stalwart. He's, he's part of this foundation of the church. And here he is. He needs to 
be rebuked for his behavior because his behavior threatens to confuse the gospel message. And so this whole letter is a loving rebuke in a way in which Paul is basically telling us, hold tight onto the gospel. Don't let go of it. It's too important. Let's move on to the last point that Paul makes. He says here that the message is changing us. This message, this gospel message, this Christian message, if you will, is so powerful. It changes us. And so as with all of Paul's letters, Galatians not only is containing doctrinal truth, but it describes what that truth looks like. And it shows how that truth is to be lived out in our everyday lives. The Bible shows us that truth and relationships go together. They're not isolated. Truth and relationships intertwine. All of your relationships are intertwined with this gospel message. And so the Bible shows us how that's going to work out here. And so what we have here is the head as well as our heart coming together. They're not divided. They're one. They're unified. And so what you think and how you act are actually related. The good news has some practical implications for both our individual lives as well as our corporate life, our, our life together. So let's take a look at how the message is changing us in these various relationships. Number one, the message changes our relationships with our teachers. It changes our relationships with our teachers. Remember, there was a problem going on in these churches in Galatia. False teachers were boasting in their flesh Boasting in the good works, keeping the Old Testament law, but Paul, he didn't do that. In fact, look what Paul boasted in in chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12, he says, It is, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision but a new creation. So, my friends, do you see that the gospel message even changes your relationships with teachers? But it goes beyond even that. It changes our relationship with God. This gospel message will change your relationship with God. You see, Paul has an agenda here. He wants people to understand that no amount of legalistic law-keeping can possibly make any sinner right before God, can't save us from His certain judgment. There is nothing that you can do in keeping the law, the the legalistic law-keeping, that's going to make you right before God. Only Christ's work on the cross satisfies God's just wrath, and only faith in Christ's work justifies the sinner. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, 
for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Just pause there for a moment. You see what's going on here? Christ was hung on a tree. Christ was hung on a tree, and in the process, He took the curse of the law upon Himself. He took your place. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, you know what happened to you? Your relationship with God changed. And so as a result, the blessings that God promised to Abraham are now coming to non-Jews, the Gentiles. That's us. How is that possible? It comes through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 26. Chapter 3, verse 26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You're not born as a son of God, but through faith you become one of His children. What a blessing. So my friends, do you see then why legalism is so dangerous? And by the way, Galatians uses legalism as where you're trying to appease God. You're trying to please God through your good works. That's, according to Galatians, what legalism is. You're trying to earn God's favor through what you do. It's dangerous, Galatians says. Ultimately, legalism is living according to the sinful nature and not according to the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe me, look at chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the end result of legalism is dangerous. It's destructive. It, it's self-deception. It's a terrible self-deception. It causes us to think we're pretty good, or at least we're good enough, when in reality, the least of our sins will condemn us before a perfectly holy God. The Bible says even our righteousness is like filthy rags. God's not impressed. So do you see the problem? You see the problem? Our sinful nature enables us to pursue all sorts of sin while maintaining this sense that somehow we are good enough when we're not. And so Paul addresses that very issue. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. Chapter 5, verse 19. Look at all these sins that are mentioned here that, that lead you to destruction. Chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pause. (laughs) Do you see this, my friends? You can't go to heaven through your works. Your works condemn you. Your works condemn you. You cannot possibly be good enough. (laughs) And so therefore, any false teaching that, that goes ahead and offers us anything than a true remedy, the only true remedy, who of course is Christ, has to be avoided with all our might. It has to be avoided because it's soul condemning. Paul says, get rid of those who wish to reintroduce the law. Get rid of those who teach that you can be saved by your works. Look what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9, he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The problem is, it only takes one false teacher, one false message to come in, and it can affect the whole thing. So Paul says, you get rid of it. Don't allow that message into your church, lest it affect everyone. So the most serious consequences of sin is hidden from the view in this life, isn't it? So Paul's warning the Galatians here to not take their future for granted. We're tempted to take our future for granted. And I want you to see what he says in chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So my friend, don't think that you're somehow going to avoid, I should say, you're going to somehow avoid judgment because you haven't faced it yet. Judgment Day is coming for every unbeliever. And, and so it's, it's really a bad argument when somebody says, hey, I haven't experienced judgment yet, so I'm not going to experience it in the future. That's not logical, is it? That's a bad argument. Instead, we need to seek God's forgiveness that comes by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. So this message changes our relationship with God. It changes the relationship with our teachers but number three and last of all we see here that the gospel message changes our relationship with each other it changes how we interact and how we live with each other see your relationship with god is going to show itself in your relationship with other people particularly other christians and that's why paul concludes this letter with a lot of practical instructions about what it means to live as a Christian. Their freedom in Christ was not freedom to just go and sin. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean that you're antinomian. You cast off the law and just do whatever you want. Self-indulgence is always a danger, sadly, when people begin to understand grace. But if they become self-indulgence, If you become self-indulgent, you don't understand grace. You don't fully understand grace. Yeah, Paul's not preaching a libertine, antinobian gospel here. That's not what he's doing. Their freedom was 
not a freedom to go do whatever they wanted to do. Their freedom was from sin, its curse, and its consequences. They must reject the idea that being saved by grace means it doesn't matter how we live. Paul is very clear, it does matter how you live. That's why he's given a lot of commands and instruction here. We're to follow the Spirit, not our sin nature. We're not to follow our flesh, but the Holy Spirit, what He tells us to do. So, look at chapter 5, verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, or live by the Spirit, if you will, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the Spirit's going to show Himself in our lives. How does He do that? Through various fruit, which He mentions in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? You see these things flowing out of you as the Holy Spirit works through you. Those aren't natural in and of yourself. That's the Spirit's work in you. Well, next we see Paul exhorting the Galatians to help one another fight sin and face life's challenges. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. See how the gospel changes us. It's lived out among us. Because he says, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So my friend, beware. Beware. It's possible that you can mentally affirm something. You can mentally affirm the gospel message. It is even possible to enjoy a Bible sermon, Bible teaching, and not actually believe it. It's possible. The Bible says that the demons believe, <laughs> but they're not saved. And so, at least it's, it's possible to enjoy a Bible teaching and not believe it, at least in a biblical sense, okay? So we need to beware of just mere intellectual Christianity. The message of Christianity makes a difference. It affects our relationships with each other. So let me ask you this as we close. How do you know if you have God's message? How do you know if you have this true gospel Christian message? You're going to know by two ways. Okay, First, by what you say. You will know by what you say. The message depends on the right content. The gospel message is definable. It is distinct. It has a specific message. So we're 
not saved by works, but we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So how are you going to know if you have this right message? Number two, you're going to know that you have God's message by how you live it out. Some of these things that Paul mentions here, is this coming out of you, the fruit of the Spirit? Are you helping each other fight against sin to live the Christian life in a way that's pleasing to God? Are you loving one another? Are you bearing one another's burdens? If you are, then you're fulfilling the law of Christ. And so if the gospel message is being lived out in your life every day, not just on a Sunday, but every day, then you know you have the right message. The gospel is going to affect your life. And here are two important questions for you to think about as we close. Let me ask you this, my friend. Are you saying the message clearly? Are you saying it clearly in a way that the unbelievers know exactly what this message is? And number two, are you living it clearly? Let's pray.